One of the things I've learned is moms are superheroes, right? Like moms have such tremendous superpowers. In fact, I remember one of the first times I, I experienced this. I was, I was in first grade. We lived out in West Valley, and we, we had this like, uh, it was like an acre and a half or two acres, and it was all grass. And I remember the grass, the lawnmower broke, so the grass was growing, and it was just really long. It, it was probably up to my knees. Now, I was a really short kid. It was actually, it was probably up to my hips. I was that short. And the grass was so long, and I remember complaining to mom. I'm like, mom, we can't play in the yard. The dog's lost. We can't find her. Like, mom, we've got to do something about this. But I got up, and I went to school, and I came back that day, and the grass was cut, and there was clippings all over. Now, again, to a seven-year-old, my seven-year-old mind, the lawnmowers broke. I assumed my for years, I thought my mom went out with scissors and cut the entire acre and a half yard of grass, and that's why the grass clippings, I, don't, I still don't know how she did it, but to a seven-year-old, I was like, my mom is a superhero. She cut the grass with scissors. I know, a little ridiculous, but that's what I thought. There's another story, though, that really shows a mom's real superpowers. Now, I have a sister who is a year older than I was, and when we were young, we were, we were close. We were, we were best friends. We do everything together. We hung out together. But the problem is, when you got siblings, sometimes siblings, uh, what do they do? What do they call that? Fight? Fight? And uh, yeah, there was one of those days where, uh, yes, even as a young child, once in a while, I made some mistakes. And I got into a fight with my sister, and we're, we're name-calling each other, going back and forth, and, and she was older than me, and, and, I, and my mom taught me, you know, you can't hit a girl, and so I'm like, what do I do? How do I get back at her? So I had this great idea, so I went and took cups of water, and I poured it all over her bed. I thought it was the funniest thing ever, because when she goes to lay in bed that night, we hear this scream, ah, because her bed was soaking wet. And of course, she goes and tattles, Mom, Kevin did this. My mom comes in. My mom says this. She says, Kevin, tonight you're going to sleep in your sister's bed and she's going to sleep in your bed. And she said, this will continue for as long as you, until you say sorry. Now, I was stubborn. There was no way I was going to apologize. And I'm looking, I'm like, well, what do I do here? I don't want to, my sister, now, if you grew up in the 90s, like any teenage girl in the 90s, like her wall was decorated with, with new kids on the block and Jonathan T uh, Thomas Taylor pictures all over the place. It was horrible. It was a horrible place. There's no way I was going to sleep in this room, but there's no way I was going to like, like apologize. So that night, my mom made me sleep in her room and I slept on the floor because I'm not sleeping in the bed. And the next day, I'm like, I'm sleeping in my room. My mom's like, no, you didn't say sorry. And so parents, you know what happened? Yep, I walked to my sister and I'm like, Sorry! There, I'm done. My mom's superpower. She says, that doesn't count. Well, why not? I said, sorry. That doesn't count, Kevin. Why not? Because moms have this amazing ability to know the difference between uh, going through the motions and actually the apology that comes from the heart. Right? Isn't, isn't it amazing how moms know that? They just know the difference between a heartfelt response and just going through the motions. I mean, I think most of us can understand there's a difference between a head knowledge of knowing what we're supposed to do, knowing how things work, and, and a heart knowledge where things become heartfelt. Rarely in any relationship do we, are we satisfied with just a head knowledge. 
Rarely is that, is that enough. You can't be married to a spouse and be like, hey, I know what I'm supposed to do for you, but my heart's not in it. That wouldn't ever work in your marriage because you want the heart. You know, as I, I think about Restoration Church, one of the things I love about our church is the fact that we are biblically rooted. It's one of our family values that we are a Bible people. That on Sundays, unapologetically, we're going to open up this book right here, and we're going to teach Scripture. We're going to study Scripture. You're not going to come and hear me give you some advice on how to live your life better and some pithy sayings on, on this is the best way to live your life. No, we are Bible people. Uh, additionally, every time, uh, I love the fact that in our kids' ministry, our youth ministry, everything is centered on how do we teach these young people, the next generation, about Scripture and how to love Scripture. In fact, I think about these young ladies that came up and, and, and dealing with worship. I love how our worship teams, our worship leaders, before any song that we sing up here, they take that time to look at the lyrics of the song to say, is this biblical? Is this consistent with what we read in Scripture? It is, it is all there. I love it. I love that we are a Bible people. But do we know that the, the goal is not knowledge of the Bible? Our goal is not just knowledge. Yet it's funny how many, of us are, how many of us are satisfied with that. If I could just get knowledge, if I could just know about the Bible, if I could just have the answers about the gospel, if, if I could just know the Sunday school answers. Listen, our goal is not that we would have a head knowledge of what the Bible teaches. Our goal is that our heart would be transformed by the things that we read. That is our goal. Jesus talked about the same thing. In Matthew 15, Jesus is talking to some Pharisees, some religious leaders. And he says, listen, you guys know a lot about me. You have a lot of information. You have a lot of knowledge. But he said, your heart is far from me. He doesn't just want us to have the knowledge. He wants our heart to be impacted by that because a knowledge is not enough by itself. It means that we have to respond to what we read. But here's the problem. It's been said that the greatest distance in the world is the distance between our head and our heart. That for some reason, this distance right here seems like it is miles and miles and miles wide. And there's a lot of us that we have a lot of knowledge, and we put a lot of confidence in our knowledge, but we struggle opening up our heart to actually respond to uh, what we read and put into action the Word of God. And because of that, because of that gap, because we won't open up our hearts, we miss out on the transformation that God wants for us. We miss out on what God wants to do in us and through us because we allow things to stay here without being connected into here. We are in a series for the next, probably the rest of the year, going through the book of Acts. Acts uh, tells a story about the early church, how the early church wasn't just an institu institution, a place where you come for religious services, you come and get a little bit of knowledge, and you go back on your way. No, the early church was a movement that changed the world around them. And because they were in motion, because they were a movement, man, it impacted families and neighborhoods and cities and states and the world. And that's what we want for Restoration Church. So last week, 
We started in Acts chapter 2 when we saw how the Holy Spirit descended upon the believers of the early church. There were about 120 gathered in a room. The Holy Spirit descends on them, and they had the sound of the mighty wind, and they had the tongues of fire that rested on each of the 120 believers, and it was a miraculous thing. And these 120 believers, they begin speaking in languages that they did not know. They start speaking in all these different languages to all the people that are in uh, Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And all these people are hearing the mighty works of God in their own native tongues. And they're like, what is going on? What is happening? Remember, there was that polarizing response. Some people saw these Christians who are trying to speak in these different tongues. And they're like, there's no way we can attribute this to being an act of God. There's no way we can say this was a miracle. And so those people said, oh, they're just drunk. Now, I don't know about, well, I can't say for myself, but when you're drunk, I don't think you're speaking in real languages. I think you're kind of gibberish, right? But there's no way that some people are going to attribute anything like that to God. But there's another part of the crowd, and they were amazed. And the question they had is, is, is what does this mean? Here you have these 120 Christians, they're gathered together, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they're speaking in these languages, they're speaking the mighty works of God, and we understand them in German and French and Spanish and Japanese and all the other languages. They're like, what does this mean? And today, we're going to see Peter, uh, one of the disciples that is filled with the Spirit. He's going to stand up, and he's going to give the very first sermon in the early church. And this is going to give, be a preview for us as to how the Holy Spirit works in the church. First thing we're going to see that the Holy Spirit does in the church is the Holy Spirit transforms people. Starts in verse 14. Here's what it says. Verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, he lifted his voice and he dressed them. Now the question is, who's Peter? It says, Peter stood up amongst, every, amongst the crowds and... And he addressed the crowds, who is Peter? Well, Peter is one of the disciples of Jesus. He spent those couple of years listening to Jesus and, and doing ministry with Jesus and learning from Jesus. And if you remember any of the gospel stories, we know that Peter is a guy who often lets his mouth get ahead of his, of his brain. His mouth, he just goes and does things without thinking about it and gets himself in trouble. Anybody know a guy like that? Any of you a guy like that? Like, that is totally who Peter is. In Matthew 16, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's teaching them, and he says this. He says, listen, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die. And Peter is like, what? No, Jesus, you're, you're, you're my, there's no way you're going to die. No way I'm going to let that happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you don't understand. This is what has to happen. This has to happen. Another time in Luke chapter 22, uh, uh, Judas has betrayed Jesus, and he leaves some guards to, to, to find Jesus to arrest him. Remember that story? The guards are there, and what does Peter do? He sees the guards coming. He, he pulls out a sword, and he slices one of the guards' ears off. You're like, Peter, what are you doing? And Jesus looks at him again. It's like, Peter, what are you doing, man? Jesus picks up the ear and, and puts it back on and heals the man. Kind of like, like what Mike Tyson did not do with Evander Holyfield many years ago. But, but Peter's like, Jesus, I'm going to fight for you. And Jesus is like, man, this has to happen. A little earlier in, in, in scriptures, uh, Jesus is with the disciples at the Last Supper. And Jesus warns and says, hey, Peter, here's what's going to happen. Peter, you're going to fall. 
you're going to fall. And Peter's like, not me. Like all these other fools, they'll fail you. But Jesus, like, like I'm never going to leave you. I'll, I'll die for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, really? You're going to make that bold promise? Jesus says, before the crow crows three times, before the rooster crows three times, you'll deny me thrice. Peter's like, no way. No way, man. I got you. I'm your ride or die. Story goes, Jesus is arrested. He's brought before the authorities. And Peter follows along from a distance. He's following along to see what happens with Jesus. And Peter is recognized by one of the servant girls and says, hey, 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 you're one of, you're one of that man's disciples. Peter's like, no, I'm not. What are you talking about? And then it happens again. Someone else recognizes and says, hey, 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 you're one of the disciples. And he's like, no, I'm not. I don't know the man. And a third time, a third time it happens. And someone says, hey, I recognize you. You're one of his disciples. You're a Galilean. And Peter says, I don't know what you are even talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed and Jesus turned. And it says, Jesus looked at Peter. He looked him eye to eye. And Peter realized, man, exactly what Jesus said was going to happen, happened. And Peter wept bitterly because he had betrayed the Lord. That's who Peter is. Now, what I find so remarkable is here we are 50 days later. 50 days later, Peter is filled with the Spirit, and he's the first one to stand up and preach a sermon in the early church. And he starts and he answers the crowd. He says, these guys, what does this mean? These guys aren't drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Look, I know some of you had your morning beer, but that's not normally the case. And he's like, hey, that's not the case with these disciples. They're not drunk. He says, what you're seeing is a fulfillment of what the prophet Joel had prophesied 550 years ago. See, Joel was one of uh, the, the precious and respected uh, prophets for the Jews. He was one of their favorites. And he had prophesied 550 years prior to this, he prophesied that the Holy Spirit was going to come and ascend upon the people. That he'd be, the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. He prophesied, this is a prophecy. He said, your sons and daughters, the young men and the old men, even your male and female servants are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going to be doing signs and wonders. Why? So that everybody who would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. And Peter says, listen, these guys aren't drunk. What you're seeing right now, the Holy Spirit coming down, these guys speaking in tongues, speaking in these languages, Peter says this is a fulfillment of the Holy Spirit coming and filling, uh, filling Christians, filling the believers. Now, this is where I want you to see how the Holy Spirit begins to transform people like Peter and people like you and I. Because here's Peter. We know him as being a coward. We know him as a guy that horrendously betrayed Jesus. And here the Holy Spirit transforms him from the coward into the courageous. You know, despite Peter's horrendous failure, and I'm so encouraged by this, this may be a word for someone in this room today. Despite Peter's horrendous failure, Jesus didn't choose to start over with somebody else. You ever thought about that? I mean, here's Peter, like, like standing up. He, he's horribly failed Jesus. Like, pretty bad. But Jesus chooses not to start over with somebody else. He chooses to work through Peter. And I don't know who that speaks to today. 
Listen, you need to know that God's not looking to start over with somebody else. Maybe you made a mess of your life. Maybe you've made some mistakes. Maybe your denials of him are real. Maybe you've had some sort of struggle. But Jesus, very similar like Peter, Jesus is not done with you. You cannot outgrace God's love. God is not done with you yet. Because here's the reality. It's just as, just as Jesus, he saw Peter's greatest failure. He saw that betrayal. Jesus saw that. And he has seen yours and mine as well. He's seen your betrayal. He's seen your failure. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's gracious redemption comes. And here we have this once denier of Jesus is the first person to stand and address the crowds and proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. And as the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter, Peter moves from being a coward to being courageous. And I believe God can do the same thing for us. In fact, let me, let me ask you, raise your hand if you're a coward. Yeah, nobody does that, but cowards don't raise their hand. He almost did, he almost did. Listen, cowards don't raise their hand. But here, here's the truth. Here's the truth of it. Like, this is what the Holy Spirit does. Transforms the cowards into the courageous. And I think if we would be open to God doing a work in our life, he could transform us in the very same way. From coward to courageous. From addicted to free. From bound to, to free. The number one, Holy Spirit transforms people. Number two, here we have Peter who's, who's transformed by the Holy Spirit. And he says, all this is happening because uh, the Holy Spirit has come and descended on the people. And number two, he's going to teach us that, uh, uh, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter is going to testify of Jesus. He's going to point and testify to Jesus. In fact, this is one of the important things about the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is a, tri is a shy member of the Trinity. See, sometimes we think about the Holy Spirit and we want to focus on the sensationalized things that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit heals people. The Holy Spirit speaks in tongues. The Holy Spirit does all these things. But listen, the Holy Spirit is shy about himself. Holy Spirit, his purpose is to point to Jesus. In fact, this is what Jesus said in John 15. He says, when the, Holy, when the Helper comes, this is the Holy Spirit, the one whom I send to you from the Father, he will testify of me. He will bear witness of me. That is what the Holy Spirit does. It points to Jesus. Now here's the reality. Peter stands up before this crowd. This crowd is gathered, want to know what's happening with all these Christians, what's happening in this early church. And Peter stands up and realizes, hey, a lot of these people, they don't get who Jesus is. See, in his day, much like our day and age, there were lots of theories or explanations as to who Jesus is. Some people thought Jesus, oh, he's just a prophet. He's just a prophet calling people back to religion, calling people back to, to uh, rules and regulations and all these things they have to do. They thought that's all that Jesus was, just a prophet. Other people thought Jesus was just a teacher. He's just a motivational teacher. He's just a motivational speaker encouraging people to live moral lives, to live good lives. Other people, they thought he was a political messiah. This is what the disciples thought. They thought he's going to be some political messiah who's going to come and drive Roman, the Roman leaders out of Jerusalem so that they could be free and not have political oppression. Other people thought Jesus was a, was a crazy guy. They thought he was a fake. 
this, is, this, is, this was the religious leaders. They thought Jesus was a threat because he had the strong, charismatic power over the people. Peter looks and says, man, these people don't understand who Jesus is. They have all these misconceptions about him. And so filled with the Holy Spirit, he's going to testify and tell you this is who Jesus is. This is what he says in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, that Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you. I had to look up that word. That means a man shown to you. A man shown to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. He says, listen, these people, man, Jesus was there. Jesus did these things and you missed it. You weren't willing to consider and believe in who Jesus was despite all these things he did among you. You couldn't grasp who he was. You did not recognize that he was the savior of the world. And because the people missed it, Jesus says, I'm going to tell you more about who Jesus is. Peter says, I'm going to tell you more about who Jesus is. He says in verse 23, this Jesus, according to the plan of God, that you crucified, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. That word pang is another word I had to look up and figure out what that word means. Pang means, uh, represents childbirth and represents a severe agony. It represents an acute pain. The pangs of death. In fact, probably my, my, my favorite definition uh, description for the word pang is a snare. A snare. You love that? See, he's saying the pangs of death could not hold him down. The snare of death, the trap that tried to keep Jesus down, it couldn't keep him down. Isn't that great? Isn't that great to know that the, the, the trap that tried to hold Jesus down, it couldn't do that. He rose from the grave. That is what Peter is trying to tell the people. Hey, Jesus, the pangs of death, they couldn't hold him down. They couldn't trap him in the grave. He rose from the grave. And Peter's like, oh, I get it. People don't rise from the grave. There's doubt to that. Jesus, Peter says, let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you. He says in verse 25, he says, David says concerning him. Now again, here's, here's Peter. He's already named dropped Joel. People on that day, they loved Joel. He was a prophet. They knew of him. And now he name drops David. David was the goat. The greatest of all time. David was, I talked about my sister when she was a teenage girl and she had pictures of Jonathan Taylor Thomas and New Kids on the Block on her wall. I don't know who they have today. Like, who's that one guy from uh, uh, One Direction? Like Harry Styles? Is that who you got pictures? I don't know. I don't know what teenage girls like. But in Peter's day, like I had pictures of Michael Jordan on my wall. In Peter's day, they had pictures of David, right? David was, was the guy everybody wanted to be like. You know, Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands. David was the guy everybody knew about. He was the goat. And, and so Peter's going to say, hey, let me quote to you what David has said. He says in verse 27, David said, you will not abandon my soul into Hades, into the grave. You will not let the Holy One see corruption. It's kind of an interesting statement that David makes. He says, you will, not let, you will not abandon my soul into Hades, or, or you will not let the Holy One see corruption. Who is David talking about? Who's this person that, that God's not going to abandon into Hades? Who's this person that God's not going to let their, their, their soul see corruption? Well, 
It's not talking about himself. Because Peter says in verse 29, Brothers, I say to you with confidence that David died and buried, and you can see his tomb to this day. He says, David's not saying that about himself. No, David died. David was buried and put in a tomb, and we can go to his grave, and we can see his body still there. His bones are still there. His body has been corrupted. It's just his bones that are left. Peter says, if David wasn't talking about himself, who was he talking about? Who's this one? Who's this one that God's not going to abandon his soul into Hades? This guy, God's not going to allow his holy one to see corruption. He says in verse 30, being a prophet, knowing that God had promised to one of his descendants to remain on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus who would not be abandoned to the grave and whose flesh would see no corruption. He says in verse 32, this Jesus has been raised up from the grave and we are all witnesses of this. Peter is saying, listen, this Jesus, he died. He died, but the grave could not hold him. His body would not experience corruption because God raised him from the dead. This is what happened. And, and Peter even says, there's 120 of us here. We're all witnesses of it. We've all seen this Jesus died. We saw him buried, and we saw him risen from the grave three days later. We spent 40 days with him. We have seen him. We can testify that he is very much alive. We saw the, the nail marks in his hand. We saw the, the hole in his side where they put the spear. We saw those things. He is very much alive and risen from the grave. Peter's like, listen, you were wrong about Jesus. This is who he is, the man who died and God raised from the grave. And he goes beyond that. He says, Jesus died and rose from the grave. But verse 33, Peter says, Now, therefore, he is exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out the Holy Spirit that you are seeing and hearing today. And he says, again, quoting David, verse 34, David said, he will send to heaven, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said, my Lord shall sit at the right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter says, this is, what, this is what happened. Jesus died and he rose from the grave and now he's been exalted at the right hand of God. That means he says, hey, this is what happened. Remember when Jesus ascended up into heaven? And now Jesus sits at the right hand of God, waiting for God to make all things right. Waiting for the day that God's going to have the second coming when, when, when he'll, he'll fix all that's gone wrong. Peter is testifying to Jesus. Hey, you guys missed out on who Jesus was. He was among you. He did these miracles. He did these things, and you missed it. So let me tell you who he is. He's a man who died who rose from the grave and is now sitting at the right hand of God, being exalted, ministering on our behalf, reigning as king. He's coming back. This is Peter's message. This is who Jesus is. And he concludes this message with verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel know for certain, without a doubt, let everybody know without a doubt, that God made Jesus both Christ and Lord. This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says, all of this, here's the summary of the message. All of this is the fact that Jesus is not just a prophet. 
He's not just a teacher. He's not just an example we follow. He's not just some crazy guy. No, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the ruler. He's the master. He's the king. He's the anointed one. He is God in the flesh. Listen, this is what the Holy Spirit does in transform people. When we are transformed by the Holy Spirit, again, the Holy Spirit's purpose is to testify to Jesus. It's a point to him. And, and as we become people like Peter, where we're transformed by the Holy Spirit, what do we do? We don't testify of our greatness. We're not up here saying, look how great I am. Here's all the wisdom I have. Here's my knowledge. No, we testify to Jesus just as Peter has done. The third thing this text teaches us is the Holy Spirit leads people to have a heart response and to repent. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, which leads to this heart response of repentance. See, look what it says in verse 37. It says, the people were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? Cut to the heart, that's not a term that we use often. That idea of cut to the heart means literally there was, a, there was like a knife to their chest. And what brought on this conviction? What brought on this being cut to the heart that they felt this, this weight inside of them? Well, again, we've got to understand a little bit about the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 16, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of their sin. He will convict the world of their sin. And I think about this message. I think about, well, here's Peter. He, he's testifying about Jesus. How do these people be convicted of their sin? What would lead them to be the point that they were cut to the heart? Well, look back with me at verse 24. Jesus says, verse 24, you crucified him by the hands of lawless men. Verse 36, he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. Do you hear that? You hear those two words? You, you, this you crucified. This Jesus who you crucified. Who is the you? Well, in one sense, it is a global you. Everybody listening. Peter's saying, you did this. You killed him. Now, obviously, we're like, hey, there's thousands of people here. These thousands, there's no way these people were involved in, in, in the crucifixion of Jesus. They weren't directly involved with it. But Peter's still saying, you did this. You killed him. Well, how's that? Well, here's what Scripture says. Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. 1 Peter 2. He bore our sins on his body on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now this you is every one of us listening. That our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. So this you is a global, represents everybody. But also this you, and, and you crucified, it also is very, it's not just a general sense. Is a very personal sense. Because I think when Peter says, you crucified, I think Peter realized this is me as well. Peter knew he had a part in the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember the night that he was betrayed? 
that he betrayed Jesus and the, and the rooster crowed and Jesus turned and he looked at Peter eye to eye. See, that night Peter saw the face of Jesus that had been beaten, that was bruised, that was swollen, that had blood dripping down. And Peter realized he was beaten because of my betrayal. He was beaten because I turned my back on him. And scripture says that he was cut to the heart and he wept. He wept. Why? Because he realized Jesus is suffering because of my sin, because of my betrayal, because of my speaking without thinking, because of my pride, that I was responsible for Jesus experiencing the pangs of death. Jesus says, you crucified him. And the people listening to the sermon, they came to the exact same conclusion. That you is me. That you crucified him. This is, is me. My sin caused the pangs of death of Jesus. And the crowd realized, like Peter, we like to follow from a distance. It feels safer to follow from a distance. Doesn't it? And we can follow from a distance, then maybe Jesus won't see our sin. Maybe he won't see that where we are. Maybe he won't see that we're not willing to fully trust him. But I tell you, when that proverbial rooster crows, Jesus, with his face beaten and bloodied and swollen, he looks down at each of us at our worst. He sees our betrayal. He sees our cheating. He sees our refusal to do things God's way. He sees our disobedience. He sees our hurtful, spiteful words that we share with other people. He sees our selfishness. He sees our pride. He sees the, the websites we try and hide on our phone. He sees our anger. He sees our hatred that we hide within our heart. You know, at that moment, the crowd realizes it's my sin that caused Jesus to experience the pangs of death. And suddenly the crowd feels the weight of that sin and they are cut to the heart. They're convicted. And they can sing that great line from the great hymnist that said, it was my sin that held him there. They say, Peter, what do we do? Peter says in verse 38, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. The Holy Spirit does, convicts us of sin and leads us to repentance. Repentance doesn't simply mean to acknowledge that sin is wrong. That's easy. That's too simple. It's not feeling sad about the consequences of our sin. That's called regret. That's not repentance. Repentance doesn't mean we're going to try harder to get better. That's not what it means. Repentance means that we actually have a change of mind. That we have a new attitude towards God. Repentance means that we surrender. In fact, we talked about this last week. That when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that we're willing to kill our flesh. Surrender ourselves. Repentance is that. When we say, God, 
I'm surrendering this to you. I'm choosing to do things your way. Here's the summary for this message. This whole thing is about the Holy Spirit transforms people to testify about Jesus and to repent of their sins. And here in the very first church service of the early church, we've got Peter, a man who's been transformed by the Holy Spirit. He's been transformed by God, who testifies to Jesus. And there's a huge crowd of people that are going to respond. It says 3,000 people that day, they opened up their hearts, not just to learn some things about Jesus. They opened their hearts, and they saw that the you in the text was them. It was their sin And it says that they repented. They became Christians. They were baptized and they were added to the church. You know, there's there's been a lot of talk in the last couple weeks about this idea of revival. Lots of conversation about what's happening at Asbury. Is that that a real revival? What is this going on? You know, time will tell whether what God did at Asbury was a real revival or not. But I tell you, the book of Acts is probably the greatest example of revival we've ever seen. And here, we just saw the very beginning of that revival, of what God is doing, where thousands of people are going to place their faith in him, and the world is, God's going to use that to turn the church into a movement that turns the world upside down. And how did that revival start? Acts chapter 2, it started because people opened their heart. They allowed the word of God and the gospel of Jesus to cut their heart and lead them to repent of their sin. And I think sometimes this is where we get a disconnect in the church between our head and our heart. Because I think we're satisfied knowing in our head, oh, Jesus died for me. I think we're satisfied knowing that. We don't think about how it was our sin that put him there. Oh, we know we're forgiven, so we don't need to think about that anymore. We don't have to think about repentance. Oh, I know Jesus forgave me, so I'm good. I've repented once. That's not for me. That's for someone else to repent. We hear a message like this, and we're like, man, I wish so-and-so was here. I wish so-and-so was here because they need to repent. Or we sit, and rather than respond to the word of God, we critique the message and the messenger. So here's what I'm going to ask us to do today. I'm going to ask us to open up our heart. When's the last time you thought through the pangs of death that Jesus Endured. When was the last time you thought that it was you that caused the pangs of death of Jesus? It was your sin that put him there. When was the last time you thought about your sin being an offense to him? And when we stop and just consider the pangs of death that Jesus endured because of us, because of me, because of you. How can we sit and continue to to justify and excuse our sin? 
Oh, it's just gossip. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a little lie. It's just a half truth. No one's going to know about it. It's not that big of a deal. It's not really an affair. It's just things I'm thinking about in my imagination. And we justify our sin again and again and again. It's not as bad as this other person. This other person is way worse than I am. It's not that big of a deal. This anger inside of me, God, I can't control it. It's just the way I am. It's just the way I'm wired. It's okay for me to be like this because that's just the way you made me. Yes, and that has caused the pangs of death to come upon Jesus that he had to endure on the cross because of that. And what do we do? Rather than open up our heart, we follow at a distance. Far enough to think, Jesus can't see me. Far enough to think, this is not a big deal. Far enough us for us to justify our sin. And you know what those things are? Those are the pangs inflicting an acute pain on Jesus. It is a big deal. He deserves better than that. He deserves more than that. That's why today I want to invite you to surrender. To let him do a work that only he can do. That maybe today we would see some folks transformed from cowards to courageous. From broken to healed. From those bound to experience freedom that God would comfort those who mourn, that he would give us a crown of beauty instead of ashes.